Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I'm talking with Dr. Lindsay Nelson in Tokyo at Meiji University. Thanks so much for joining, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. So today we're talking about your really interesting book, Circulating Fear, about how Japanese horror themes can relate in very interesting, insightful ways to Japanese society, society around the world, in fact. And uh, ideas of sustainability are also things that we're going to talk about today, not only about social impact of things that are viewed. Um, but there is a bit of environmental impact as well that I think we're going to discuss today. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks so much. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, your、uh, book, your analysis, and using horror as a lens, how did you get interested in looking at Japanese horror and how it relates to things in reality? Yeah, I mean, I think that I was a, a horror fan from a very young age, and、uh, that gradually grew into an interest in Japanese horror, both when I first lived in Japan and also in grad school, where I took some seminars that focused a lot on contemporary horror cinema.、Um, and I think that the idea that Japanese horror is connected to certain social problems and social issues. It has been there from the start、uh, since the sort of J horror boom period of the late 90s and early 2000s. A lot of scholars have been writing about how、uh, Japanese horror really often focuses on things like loneliness and depression and social isolation and、uh, domestic abuse and、uh, neglect and,、uh, you know, just a, a lot of the, the sort of hot button issues that Japan has dealt with、uh, in the past few decades.、Um, And so I, I was kind of looking at that and also looking at it through the lens of new media and the way that、uh, new media objects and new media technologies、um, have really、uh, been central to a lot of Japanese horror narratives,、uh, beginning as far back as movies like The Ring and.、Uh, Uh, one Missed Call and Pulse.、Um, but now, you know, those movies were kind of focused on things like floppy disks and,、uh, you know, the internet and television. Whereas now, more recently, these movies are focused on things like YouTube and Nico Nico and Nichanaru.、Um, and so, you know, it's it, the, the content, I guess, is not new, but the way we think about it and the way it appears in these movies and the way it appears in marketing for these movies has definitely changed a lot. Yeah, definitely.、Um, how, how we get the information, how we watch the horror on our phones, which is also so integrated into our daily life. You're, you're talking about in the book how that like, heightens the fear, right? That heightens、yeah. the, the whole topic because it's, it's so much more an engaging part of how we live our lives, right? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in the past, at least the, the television was maybe something that we could turn off and we could walk away from at the end of the day.、Um, but now I think a, a lot of us live in this world where our, our smartphones are an extension of our bodies and we sleep with them next to us on our, our pillows. And、um, people often joke about how, oh, I'm going to quit Twitter, I'm going to quit. Instagram, but, but we don't.、Um, a lot of us don't because you know, we feel compelled to continue using them, but also because they're inextricably tied to our work and to our social lives. And you know, we, we don't want to lose that connection, even though it can also be really damaging to us in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely.、Uh, let's go through the book a little bit,、uh, introducing the chapters. So, your title, Japanese Horror Fractured Realities in New Media, we touched on a little bit. It looks like in chapter one,、uh, you kind of introduce the idea of. This new digital medium and、uh, how engaging with horror, as well as our daily lives being so dependent on digital medium、um, for Zoom calls and, and our work now during coronavirus. Did you write this during the pandemic? You、It、know, so related. Yeah. I mean, the, a lot of this book began a very long time ago、um, with uh, uh, some conference presentations that I did, and one chapter was、uh, published elsewhere, an earlier version of it was published elsewhere. And some of the thinking goes back like 10 years. But yes,、uh, definitely. 
um, the a lot of the editing and the revising happened during the pandemic, so it was unavoidable uh, to be thinking about it in that context. And in particular, the, the conclusion, I talk about that a little more specifically. But I think just um, living through the pandemic and seeing uh, the impact that Zoom had on our lives, the, the different way that we started to think about screens and uh, smartphones and um, kind of our digital lives, uh, yeah, it, it kind of created a whole new level uh, to a lot of this horror. And more specifically, you know, there were actual directors out there, both Japanese and non, who started to make these like Zoom-based horror films or, you know, uh, movies like Shadow, which was a short film that um, the director actually filmed during quarantine, um, you know, in his house with, with his wife. Um, and so, you know, you had both these specific films that were actually making use of a lot of pandemic era realities, but then you had other films that were older that suddenly people were just kind of looking at in a new way. Um, because uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, we felt we were comforted by this, the, to have this technology, of course, because it was less isolating, but it also quickly became really stifling you know we, we were kind of trapped in screens in a way and um so i think that the horror that dealt with that sort of technology kind of spoke to us in a new way during the pandemic ah and you teach of course you teach university students at major university and we were talking a little bit before we started how you're teaching content courses in english in english conversation but you do touch on a lot of these japanese horror examples how do your students react because i think even more than our generation your students, the 20-year-olds, are so connected to their smartphones. And a lot of the horror that you talk about is using the smartphone as a way to connect with them. You can't escape it, right? Yeah. And I think young people especially feel that way. Yeah, I learned so much from my students, you know, as, as the kind of old person who is perhaps not as connected uh, as they are. Um, but yeah, they, they definitely have a different different perspective on this than I do as, as people who are even more constantly connected than I am. And my classes, um, so like a lot of uh, foreign professors in Japan, I teach content-based English classes. So I teach English classes with titles like gender in English language media. Um, or, you know, idols and, and celebrity culture or something like that. Um, and I don't actually uh, put the word horror in my course titles just because I find that the students tend to be scared of horror and they, they won't come to the class if I, if I put that title in. So instead, I, I kind of sneak the horror content in there just a little bit occasionally. Um, I, I do have one class called Haunted Japan, which is very specifically about uh, spooky stuff. But... Um, yeah, the students, I think, um, I, one, one example that I always remember is that in one of my classes, I, I occasionally pose the question, um, you know, do you have any uh, screen-free time? You know, when, when is your screen-free time? Like, when, when do you disconnect? And the students have looked at me blankly and just been like, when I sleep, <laughs> I guess. Like, they, they don't, you know, a lot of them just don't have a concept of being disconnected like they're always online they're always you know corresponding and chatting and you know and I don't want to be the old fuddy-duddy who says oh this is dangerous and you know you're hurting it's like this is their lives this is you know this is how they've grown up and I do think that you know perhaps as they get older they will maybe start to realize that they should step back just a little bit occasionally but you know they they grew up with this from infancy you know in a way that I didn't um so I, I have to remember that too I know there's so much pressure, right, about replying to messages really fast, always having your phone on you. If you don't reply within an hour, you have to have a deep apology. This, it's really deep, like the, the embedded culture to messaging and social media now for young people, especially in Japan, is really strong. But you, you touched on something that I thought was really interesting. I've been following a new series by Pod Save America by John Favreau. He's doing a series called Offline, uh, talking to people, people so embedded in media in the States and finding ways to get offline and escape the screen. And I thought that's really interesting contrast and an interesting relation to what you're, you're talking about in your book. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the it, it's so ironic to me that, you know, we have spent so many decades building and celebrating uh, these technologies that get us so connected. And now uh, people are sometimes paying huge amounts of money to go to places where there is no cell phone signal. Um, and, you know, you can go to these these retreats in the woods um, where, where there's no cell phones allowed. Because for some people, that is quite literally the only way that they can actually uh, disconnect from something. Um, I, I was a late adopter. I actually put off getting a smartphone for quite a while and was made fun of it relentlessly by uh, coworkers and friends. Um, and then, you know, I, I joined in like everyone else. And now I, I have my phone on me at all times. But I don't know. I, I think, again, maybe because I'm of a slightly different generation than my students, I, I don't have as much trouble disconnecting every now and then. And in particular, I don't feel this pressure to reply instantly uh, to messages. And, um, you know, I'll reply when I'll reply. And, that, and that's not re really a big deal. But I do feel for them in that sense. I feel for them um, for the, the horrific social pressure. Because uh, social pressure is already bad enough, I think, when you're a teenager. And to have the added level of digital <laughs> social pressure must just be really, really hard. Yeah. I've heard from students, including my own kids, um, that having rules by the school about no mm -hmm. phones on in mm -hmm. the school, no phone use in the school, mm -hmm. uh, us having rules about certain times of the day when they have mm -hmm. to turn it off. And at first they complain, of course, mm -hmm. um, but then they realize the benefits mm -hmm. of not being the one who made that rule. Yes. That yes. they can tell their friends that's a really easy excuse. Yes. Sorry, my mom said I can't be online yes. or or my school said, right? So yes. being strict in that way is mm -hmm. it has an added benefit, I think, to get kids yeah. off the hook for I think so too. Yeah. When when someone else is the bad cop, um, I think that that makes a big difference, definitely. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I love this picture from your chapter one, uh, the, all the layers of <laughs> you're yeah. taking a picture of it as you're watching someone mm -hmm. in the horror film, mm -hmm. uh, watching horror on his screen. It's like all, it's like looking in a mirror, right? All the yep. reflections. Yeah. 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 That, um, you know, as I was I, I was working on the book, I was frequently watching a lot of these films on my own laptop in my own apartment on my desk and then i noticed um as in these photos that i was watching other people watching video on a laptop and it became this kind of you know funhouse mirror <laughs> situation and it i think I, I write as well about the the idea of both digital and physical clutter um so you know if you're uh watching um this movie, uh, you know, you you see sometimes in in movies like Unfriended or uh, some of the the Nee Channel Curse series, where a lot of it takes place on a laptop. You not only see the video itself, you see the little icons in the background. Um, and then if you are watching yourself on a laptop, you have your own icons and your own digital clutter in the background. So again, it just it really blurs the the lines between you know, what is the content and what is your own life. And I know that I, I had a particularly unnerving experience where um, I think that the movie Unfriended famously, you know, takes place entirely within the confines of Skype call. Um, so as you're watching it, uh, you know, all you're seeing is lo like what we're seeing now. Um, and uh, as I was watching it on my laptop, I received a Skype call and, you know, it beeped at me and I kind of like jumped out of my skin. <laughs> because in that brief moment, I didn't know if it was the film or if it was a friend calling me. So, um, yeah. So, and I think that's that's very conscious. Those kinds of effects uh, that we now see in a lot of these new horror films. Um, and I, I talk in the book as well about how the marketing for these kinds of films is also taking advantage of that. Where um, if the film is about, you know, an app. Uh, or some kind of internet related thing that the marketing will often include some sort of creepy message that you will receive uh, online or uh, on your computer. And that, you know, just kind of adds to, to the creepiness factor. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I was listening to a great interview um, you did, uh, which we're going to refer to when we talk about uh, idols and horror in the next section. But you were also, you mentioned there was one movie maker who, if you downloaded the app before you watched the movie, that they would send you a message during the movie, yes. which is related to the movie. And I yes. thought, that's really clever. Yeah. Very sinister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there. I think, you know, way, way back in the days of the Blair Witch Project, we had kind of the first viral marketing campaign before the internet was a thing. And now it's just become commonplace uh, to, you know, play things up on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and to have these kind of viral stunts like um, with the uh, the English language rings film where they set up this fake uh, TV store with a fake screen and had people shopping for TV stores and then an actual person would crawl out of the screen and people would scream um and yeah the one of the marketing campaigns for one of the uh ring sequels uh involved actually registering at some website and then while you were watching the movie you would get a call and this you know voice would say seven days or something like that um so you know i think uh it it makes sense given that um you know, movie theater attendance has been declining for a very long time. And the old model of just relying on uh, people paying for uh, either movie tickets or DVDs or something is long gone. And, uh, you know, obviously people, a lot of people just download their movies or watch them on YouTube or something. Um, so I think that uh, obviously companies have had to get very creative uh, with how they sort of promote engagement because everybody wants the engagement, you know, which can lead to free advertising, which can lead to, you know, um, just more uh, more sources of revenue, <laughs> basically. So that's just wild, isn't it? But it it shows like even the ring, which is probably the most famous Japanese horror film that people around the world would know. Mm -hmm. Um, they have updated, right? From mm -hmm. videotapes, which maybe people yes. don't don't relate to now, right. um, to really engaging with what people are using right now. So the makers themselves are so engaged with like pop culture and how people live their lives and finding ways to to get them where they are and that's kind of a common theme of your book right yeah i think that um on the one hand I, I often feel like the japanese film industry at least the major studios are stuck in the dark ages when it comes to uh how they you know promote and uh, uh, uh distribute and, and make their films but in many ways they're actually very much having their their finger on the pulse of uh what people are interested in and they do know um, you know, which types of uh, social media platforms to really target and, and uh, which types of uh, people, you know, will be interested in this one thing. I'm, I'm just seeing this comment from Colleen Laird here. Colleen Laird here saying, I'm imagining getting a text from Lars von Trier in, in media arrest and I'm beside myself with terror. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be really frightening. <laughs> I think I've lost your audio for just a second. I also wanted okay. to mention Enrique's comment uh, about yes. uh, stopping to watch horror because mm -hmm. of the connection with perceptions mm -hmm. of reality. Yeah. yeah, you start to see ghosts everywhere. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and not being able to escape. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, this could bring us, thanks for joining Colleen. It's great to see her here. Now, both of you have done some collaborative work as well on reviewing horror films through Egophiles, right? Yes, so uh, uh, Professor Laird has done uh, an amazing uh, series of uh, video interviews on Japanese horror. Uh, I'm included, uh, Dr. Rachel Dumas is there, um, also uh, Dr. Stephen Brown, um, Catherine Hemmen, and uh, these are all conversations about different Japanese horror movies, and more recently, uh, just more general videos about uh, mise-en-scene and cinematography. And yes, uh, I, we also have a website um, where uh, we uh, look at just Japanese cinema in general, but my reviews on that website uh, also tend to focus on Japanese horror. Yeah. Now you had a, a great uh, interview with Colleen Laird, uh, who's in Canada, is that right? Uh, yes, uh, Canada and uh, Washington. 
and uh, it was it really connected to your chapter too. Uh, let's start with that interview because it was kind of a main theme of your your connections between idol culture and Japanese horror and the actual realities and the gender inequity of a lot of the idols, but also it kind of reflected on a lot of gender issues in Japan in general, right? Yeah, I think so. I'm, and I think that, you know, there's been a lot of really interesting scholarship on idol culture and uh, gender over the last couple of years. Patrick Galbraith and Jason Carlin have really uh, covered this a lot. And for me, what, what I was particularly interested in was that there is this sort of genre of, of what I call idol horror, where there are, of course, pop idols in Japan, both individuals and groups, um, often appear in movies, you know, they're, they're cross-platform cross performers, so they're, they're always appearing in TV shows, commercials, movies. Um, and, uh, but in particular, they, they seem to be popping up in a lot of horror films. And on the one hand, this wasn't surprising because I think, um, you know, in a horror film, uh, you often have young women <laughs> as victims, uh, so they just have to run around and scream a lot. Um, also, a lot of these uh, horror films are found footage or found footage style, so the, the idols can sort of, uh, you know, ad lib. They, they don't really have to have a script and they don't really have to do a lot of complicated acting because some of them are not necessarily trained uh, performers. Um, and for me, I just really started to notice how perhaps inadvertently, um, a lot of these films, while they were about ghosts and monsters and scary things, they were also kind of a portrait of the dark side of the idol industry. Um, because uh, in Shirome, one of the, the films that I talk about, one of the themes of the film is how this group of very young women, I think the youngest is like maybe 13 or 14 years old, they're all teenagers, are just expected to be eternally cheerful. Um, and they are put in these, you know, scary situations where they're like going to a haunted school and stuff. And, and they know it's not real, but still they're, you know, they're kind of playing it up as if it's real. But just the whole time how they keep going back to this, you know, I have to do my best for the company. And, you know, we have a duty to the fans. So everything's fine. It's all OK. And at some point it just starts to feel kind of deranged um, that these young women uh, are uh, expected to just be cheerful all the time. And, and I think you see an even darker version of this in a much, much earlier film called Psychic Vision or Jagande, uh, which is about um, a, a young woman, a pop idol, and the, the recording of her new uh, music video and how it, it kind of touches on a sort of haunted cassette tape and, and this kind of cursed song, which comes up in a lot of other idol horror films as well. But there too, you just kind of see how this, this young woman is just sort of treated as a thing and a commodity and uh, is repeatedly put in a lot of danger um, within the narrative, not in, in reality. Um, and uh, it all just comes down to, you know, we have to get the shot. We have to get this video. And it doesn't really matter who, you know, dies <laughs> as a result. Yeah. So that's uh, something I just started to notice more and more uh, as I looked at the depiction of, of pop idols, especially female pop idols in, in horror films. Yeah. It's a really interesting part of, I think, Japanese society because you have this exploitation of young women and making them into these sexy icons, even really young girls in these pop bands. And then you also push this pressure of the gaman idea and they should be grateful for being famous, but their actual reality is really horrible and exploited mm -hmm. and they don't have much independence. They're not able to live normal lives and the fans are king, right? The old, old idea of customers are king, but the fans are really king and they're expected to gum on, like you say many times and just take it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, there's a, a wonderful documentary on Netflix uh, called Tokyo Idols by Miyake Kyoko, which um, I think, uh, it delves into this in, in an interesting way in the sense that it doesn't just purely demonize uh, the fans and also indicates that the idols themselves in many cases do have a bit of agency. 
um, but are also working within a system that gives them very few options. Um, and so, you know, kind of feel compelled to, to take on this kind of work. And yeah, I think that particularly in the wake of a couple of years ago, there was a very high profile incident in which uh, a young woman, uh, Yamaguchi Maho, who was uh, uh, one of the performers for NG NGT48, which is one of the subsets of AKB48, the very large idol group, uh, was assaulted outside her apartment um, and uh, basically was told to keep quiet, you know, not to make trouble, but, but did go public and, you know, made this very tearful video. Uh, where she said she didn't feel safe and that the agency wasn't helping her and then eventually like apologized for it because she you know had again created trouble but I feel like that did at least for a moment kind of start a conversation about the really exploitative practices in these in this industry where a lot of these young women you know sign these essentially indentured servitude contracts uh, for a very long time and they, you know, are often subject to harassment or even assault, um, but we don't know about it because the agencies keep it quiet. Um, they, you know, earn very little money for the amount of work they do. And then for those of them who are in the industry for a very, very long time and eventually graduate, which they have to because they can't do it once they reach a certain age, they often have very few skills um, and they, they have it, they have difficulty transitioning into uh, the, the non-idle world. Um, and to me, uh, so, so much of that is horrifying. And I think that um, it, again, I, I don't think that necessarily the directors and the producers of many of these horror films who are often connected to the the idol agencies themselves are necessarily trying uh, to present a sympathetic, you know, dark portrait of this industry. But however, inadvertently, um, it is happening. At least, you know, I, I can't unsee a lot of the the sort of dark things that I'm, I'm seeing in a lot of these films. Yeah, absolutely. But the the real contrast, I think, for me is how you hear a lot of young women who are in that drive to become a pop idol and they see it as kind of something that would make their life complete and whole. And then you see the other side of, of women in Japan who become pop idols and it's so dissatisfying and they lose their independence. And, you know, there's so many cases of bullying as well, right? Connected to that whole, the envy and the woman who was a pro wrestler and, and she committed suicide and she was getting bullied so badly on social media. There's so many connections um, from this chapter about idol culture and, and J-horror. One interesting uh, theme that I don't think we've mentioned yet, you touched on it with Blair Witch Project, is the whole uh, focus on using found footage or the mockumentary and how I think that's an added layer of trying to show this is the reality. We know it's not the reality, but that's an added wrinkle we haven't talked about yet. Sure. And I, I think that, you know, found footage has been around for a very long time, uh, even before the Blair Witch Project. I think a lot of people point to the Blair Witch Project as the place where it really took off uh, as a form of mainstream horror around the world. But, you know, it, it, it was around uh, before then. And within Japan, interestingly, I think that when people think of J-horror, when they think of films like The Ring uh, and uh, The Grudge, um, they don't necessarily immediately think of found footage um, because, you know, the, perhaps the most famous uh, forms of J-horror are not found footage horror. But actually, if you look at um, earlier films and kind of the roots of J-horror, you, you find these uh, TV series like the Honto ni Kawaii Hanashi or the True Scary Stories series, um, which were these, you know, short series that aired on television that purported to tell true ghost stories um, and were filmed in a kind of mockumentary fashion. And then you have films like Jagande or Psychic Vision, which came out in 1988, which is much, you know, quite a while before uh, The Ring and other films. And that is very much a found footage horror film about, you know, people finding this videotape, which shows this kind of cursed uh, video production of this, this pop idol's uh, music video. Um, and so I think that um, found footage has been connected to J-horror for a very long time, um, even if the most famous movies aren't examples of found footage horror. And now, uh, in the last 10 years, there have been quite a few uh, Japanese horror films that use uh, the found footage format, or at least use it to a certain extent, even if the movie itself 
is um, a narrative film, uh, not a found footage horror film, there's usually some little found footage component in there somewhere. You know, somebody finds a cursed video on Nico Nico or YouTube, um, or, you know, somebody gets a mysterious uh, video call on their cell phone. Or even more recently, there have been a couple of kind of Zoom <laughs> focused uh, horror films as well. Um, and yeah, I think it really, it adds to uh, the, the the very complicated ideas about authenticity because this is this is the the holy grail these days that every you know uh, person who wants to make money on the internet wants is authenticity you know I want the real you the real thing which of course I think most of us are savvy enough to realize now is heavily curated <laughs> um, even even stuff that looks rough even stuff that looks like oh I just you know turned on my camera and this was found of course it's heavily curated and involves you know careful framing and careful lighting and careful choices about editing but um, if it has that feeling of rawness um, and I just found this then it creates a powerful effect. That is so true. And I think that connects in many ways to ideas of sustainability and how we know that more and more people are seeking out more sustainable products and services now. And how do they find out which one is actually ethical or sustainable, better for the environment, better for society than another product? And quite often, the companies are becoming very clever at trickery, right? So this is, is very connected to the whole idea of authenticity and reality and using that well, definitely planned to make it look amateur, but it's done by professionals, whole idea of the found footage I found really interesting. You also talk about performative authenticity. Um, <laughs> and I think we saw this in uh, Shinome, yeah, the, Shinome. Mm -hmm. Shinome, the uh, movie you guys were talking about, how you, you thought probably it wasn't scripted Mm. Um, to keep that little bit yeah. of maybe they're really going through this kind of mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah, I mean, based on, again, whenever you're dealing with anything that features pop idols, it's very hard to get to anything resembling the truth um, because uh, everything is so heavily curated. And, you know, even their their origin stories, you have to wonder how, how much of it is really true. But based on some interviews that I found uh, with Shirai Shikoji, the director, uh, it does seem like, of course, they had a structure. The film had a structure. It had a series of beats um, and plot points. And the the young women um, in Momido Korova Zedo, which is the the name of the pop group, were certainly given you know a prompt. They were given a setup where they were they said, "Okay, you're in this room, um, and now I want you to tell us all how you feel about going to this haunted school tomorrow." Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, the, these these young women were being asked to do something they were very familiar with. You know, they were being asked to basically give some version of I'm going to do my best, which is something they've, they've done a lot before. But I do think that their reactions, um, you know, when scary things happen, when when someone appears to be possessed or something, um, on the one hand, I'm sure they knew that that wasn't actually real. But on the other hand, their reactions seem quite genuine. Um, some of them are crying and uh, they they seem very upset. Uh, so, um, but I think it's, it's also this constant combination of it's real, but it's also a performance. And it's really hard to kind of separate the two because idol culture and being an idol is very much about performing emotions. You know, you you perform tears when you're supposed to be moved by something. You perform surprise on on these, you know, variety shows that so many of them appear on. And I think that if you were to kind of pin them down and say, okay, was that real? It would be very hard to answer that question because when you live your life in a constant state of being on and performing, that line really starts to blur. And I, I you know, that that's another thing that, that is kind of scary for me is, you know, these very young women are living in a world where do they really know where the line is between their so-called authentic self and their idol self? And I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure that that they can say where that line uh, ends and begins because it, it it's pretty blurry. Ah, that's really interesting and very important to keep talking about and discussing and thinking about and hopefully having discussions with young women and seeing where they stand and if they are even noticing that that is kind of being perpetuated onto them 
by the powers that be or by the media as the way they should be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another great comment from Colleen. She says, I'm so curious about uh, what may have happened during the pandemic with so many people stuck in their homes and afraid to go outside. Have you seen developments in this genre that have tapped into this? You know, I, I don't know that I've seen it specifically within Japanese horror. Again, I, I'm there have been one or two very small films that I've noticed that seem to feature Zoom calls and maybe spooky things happening on Zoom calls. I feel like that was something that happened a lot at the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, people made these kind of remote uh, films and it was sort of a novelty back when we thought the pandemic was only going to last like six months or something. And then I think people quickly got tired of it because it just became a reminder of what we were all dealing with. Uh, and so you haven't seen quite as many of those, but I don't know. I, I have seen uh, a little bit um, in, in a couple of recent Japanese horror films, just a, a little more focus on like kind of hikikomori type people um, and, you know, characters who tend to spend a lot of time in their room uh, watching YouTube or, you know, in kind of like group chats or something. And, and that isn't necessarily something we didn't see before the pandemic. Um, but maybe we are seeing it a little bit more now. Beyond Japan, of course, I've seen, you know, there was the the horror film Host, uh, which uh, premiered on Shudder, which is a Zoom-based horror film. Um, and then, uh, you know, even just stuff like Bo Burnham's Inside, <laughs> which, you know, there's this performance piece that he made while he was kind of in quarantine that just tried to express the feelings of all these people, um, you know, trapped inside. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, even if we're not necessarily seeing uh, like pandemic horror films, like films about the pandemic, I, I think it has to be informing uh, the creative impulses of the people who are making these films. So um, it, I think I do think it's showing up indirectly um, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Enrique says pandemic data stats are enough yeah. horror for the moment. That's true. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think I, I mentioned this a bit in my book's conclusion, like what, during the pandemic, especially as it, it got longer, I, I remember thinking to myself that I just I wasn't going to be able to watch horror at this time because there was so much horror playing out all around me. Um, and I was just going to be seeking out, you know, fluffy kitten videos or something. But in fact, I actually did seek out a lot of horror during the pandemic because horror is often um, an escape for a lot of people. And it's cathartic. And, you know, putting on this film, which has people dealing with monsters and ghosts, um, can be, you know, a way of looking at a different type of scary when when your your day to day scary is just, you know, worrying about getting sick or your loved ones dying. Um, a, a movie about uh, vampires or werewolves or haunted internet um, can can be a release in a way. You know, it's a way to experience a different kind of fear uh, from a safe vantage point. Um, so yeah, that that was surprising that that horror was still an outlet for me <laughs> during the pandemic. Isn't that interesting? Like you, you would have been scared before, but now your reality has become so scary that actually horror is kind of a, a escape from our scary reality. Yeah. Escaping one horror for another, basically. Yeah, but the ridiculousness of, of horror is kind of comforting in a way, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think perhaps that's why we haven't seen just a ton of pandemic-themed horror films, uh, because perhaps the creators knew that that was maybe not what people were seeking at the time. They have enough of that from yeah. the news, right? Yes. Yes. Um, now, one unfortunate connection to your next chapter is pandemic related with the increase in suicides uh, it, during the pandemic, especially in Japan, we saw more children and more women committing suicide than ever before. The rates went up quite a lot. Um, Unfortunately, that's a horrible but common theme in Japanese horror films about suicide forests, which you covered in the next chapter. Is that right? Yeah. So um, I, I had a chapter on uh, just kind of depictions of Aokigahara, sometimes called the suicide forest, in both Japanese and non-Japanese media. And this is something I've actually been working on for a long time. 
uh, just because I, I was curious long before the famous or infamous Logan Paul incident where this YouTuber went and filmed himself kind of offensively in Aokigahara and was roundly condemned for it. Um, I was just really interested in how um, Aokigahara had become a popular topic for YouTubers and, uh, you know, just kind of people wandering into the forest with selfie sticks and, and talking about how creepy it was. And then also there, there was a period where there were several movies, one right after the other, non-Japanese movies uh, like The Forest, uh, um, Forest of the Living Dead, um, and uh, a bunch, uh, the, the, the People Garden. There were just these kind of like cheap, knockoff uh, horror films. I think The Forest was maybe the most expensive one. And it just, it seemed to be just kind of an endless source of fascination for a lot of people. But I also had very mixed feelings about that, of course, because this is a real place um, where real people have actually gone to die. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about people kind of sensationalizing this. And, and not surprisingly, a lot of uh, content related to Aokigahara in English tended to be uh, connected to a lot of sort of Orientalist uh, notions of Japan is particularly weird and depraved. And, you know, uh, there, there isn't this stigma against suicide in Japan like there is in the West. And all of that was just, yeah, I thought, very problematic and, and messy. So I, I tried to, you know, do a lot more sort of in-depth research and see where a lot of that came from um, and also what a lot of these films were drawing from. And uh, basically, I, I think that, you know, films, uh, and interestingly, there there have been, uh, recently, there, there was a Japanese horror film called Suicide's Forest Village, uh, which was made in the forest, um, and they managed to get the prefecture to lift their usual ban uh, on filming uh, there. And this, to me, was one of the first kind of big-budget examples of a Japanese horror film actually going into the, the forest to film. And one of the reasons, at least they claim, one of the reasons they were allowed to film in there was because this film, Suicide Forest Village, was kind of far from the reality. It was not really a film about suicide. It was not a film that, that claimed to, you know, trace the history or anything. It was purely fantastical. And it imagined this kind of like haunted village in the middle of the forest. Um, and that to me was really fascinating that on the one hand, you have a lot of these films that are striving for authenticity in a kind of documentary feel. But the reason that this film was allowed uh, to take its cameras into the forest, at least according to the, the prefectural government, was because it was not realistic um, and that they were then OK with it. That is so interesting. And it's kind of like a way for uh, the government or the destination to control the narrative yes. or diffuse the actual reality yeah. by showing it in a different way, which seemed fake, even though that is reflecting what is really happening. It's, exactly. it's really wild. Yeah, it is. And and I, I talk in the in the chapter a little bit as well about how they, they kind of tried to have their cake and eat it, too, because, you know, they had this very scary movie. But then the production company actually collaborated with Yamanashi Prefecture and used one of the actresses from the film still wearing her same outfit and playing her same YouTuber character in this short, like, 30-second uh, ad that ran uh, on YouTube just you know, showing the scenic beauty of the forest um, and basically with, with text that said things like, you know, come take a journey to this magical power spot that is Aokigahara. Uh, so it was really, I think, about um, Yamanashi Prefecture trying to control and kind of reclaim uh, the narrative, which is something they've actually been doing for quite a while. Um, Yamanashi Prefecture has been working uh, to hire nature guides and to put out, you know, kind of their own uh, brochures and information about the forest as a scenic hiking spot because they know that if they can encourage a lot of like hiking tourism and there are a lot of people in the forest, then people are less likely to go there to try to die because it will be less isolated. You know, if it's, if it's full of people, people are less likely to do that. Um, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, exercise because obviously um, the, the long history of, of suicide in, in Aokigahara has been incredibly traumatic uh, for the prefecture, for the people who uh, work in the, you know, gift shops and, and things who have often had to become 
uh, involuntary suicide counselors because they are the last point of contact uh, for people who, who go into the forest. Um, and also the economic toll, um, you know, wh whenever a body is found uh, in Aokigahara, the prefecture has to deal with it. It's often unclaimed uh, and they, they don't necessarily have the budget to do that. Um, and, you know, obviously these are average people who suddenly have to deal with, with large numbers of bodies. So really, Anything that, that Yamanashi Prefecture wants to do uh, to change or, or reclaim the narrative, I think is great. Well, I mean, you could look at it at a like a more proactive aspect. Like, why not get uh, suicide counselors to go work with the local people and help train the people in the local shop to have in Japan? We have the 119 posters everywhere for kids who are in trouble to call a helpline or you can come in this shop and you can get support. We know that's happening in that area. Why not? engage with the locals and get them to be that support network that's lacking. Yeah, um, and it, it has happened. I think they have done a lot of that work. I guess for me, the, the kind of frustrating thing about it is that in some cases you have a group of people who just all the only thing they signed up for was to be, you know, a cashier. <laughs> they didn't necessarily sign up to be a counselor and now they have kind of been forced into that role. But the, the good news is that, yes, um, also Yamanashi Prefecture is collaborating with with experts and, and with professionals to kind of help uh, deal with this problem. But for some people, it's just kind of like, oh, I didn't ask for this, but now this is what I am because well, you know, especially it can't if, be they, if they go into a job not knowing yeah. the, of the area <laughs> exactly. right. um, before they start, definitely they would need some counseling as well. Um, sure. Yeah. Interesting. There was one part of that chapter that I also thought was really interesting. You were talking about the pieces of the forest literally breaking and then coming together again and then breaking again. And it, could that be like a reflection on our environmental problems in a, in a way that the idol culture going into the abandoned school or abandoned building is also a reflection of societal change in Japan, the aging population, abandoned buildings. Um, could that reflect kind of climate change or nature? Breaking yeah, down? You know, I haven't really thought about um, climate change in relation to Aokigahara, but when we talk about abandoned buildings and when we talk about like derelict buildings and, uh, you know, kind of the, the emptying of the countryside, absolutely. I think that uh, this is a big part of it. And I actually, one of my upcoming projects uh, relates to haunted houses and everything that means uh, when we talk about a haunted house or a haunted space. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, how certain spaces uh, become derelict and become uh, run down. And in Japan, yes, a lot of times it is specifically related to the depopulation of the countryside. Also, uh, the declining birth rate uh, and the fact that when it comes to schools, uh, there just aren't enough young people. And I think that the haunted school or the abandoned school is just such a potent image uh, in so many horror films and in Japanese horror films in particular, uh, because you have this juxtaposition of this like charming, nostalgic place that is now covered in weeds and mold and, you know, is just kind of uh, slowly died uh, from lack of use. Um, and to, to go back to the, the image of Aokigahara, there's a, um, a music video that I talk about that was filmed there um, where uh, you have like an image of the forest and then it just kind of shatters like glass. You know, you have all of these pieces of the forest kind of shattering and then they slowly come back together. And for me, I think that definitely was kind of a potent image of how um, our, our idea of certain places is kind of fractured and put back together uh, with different movies where, you know, we take all the pieces and we sort of put them together into something new. Um, but yeah, I think it could also relate to um, the way that, um, you know, obviously our, our relationship with nature is pretty uh, broken and fractured at this point, And we're all trying to, to kind of rebuild uh, into something different, but in terms of, um, yeah, uh, 
empty buildings, the depopulation of the countryside, uh, that is something that I'm, I'm really interested in, in terms of uh, how Japanese cinema deals with that and how Japanese horror specifically deals with it. Well, it, it's so important to have the art or the, the media or the filmmakers involved in these conversations and highlighting it in their own way, including horror filmmakers. I just, I find that so interesting and something I've never thought about before. Uh, there's a lot of Japanese films or Korean films that really expose social inequities, right? Like the Korean film that won Parasite, that yes, won all the sure. awards um, a couple years ago. It's a really important part of how we understand and how we are aware of what's happening in our own world somehow. Right. Yeah, and and I think this for me is is has always been one of the fundamental fascinating things about horror is that whether we like it or not, and whether the directors and filmmakers and creators intend it or not, horror is fundamentally about what it means to be human, and and part of what it means to be human is what are we scared of and what are we afraid of losing, um, and I think that uh, horror films kind of sneakily. Uh, explore that because you know if you're if you're watching a horror film and you're coming to it as a, a horror fan or something you're probably just expecting some freaky escapism but before you know it th there's more there and I, I don't know that necessarily the, the filmmakers or the creators sit down and say okay I'm going to make an issue film or I'm going to make a film that has a message about this but it can't be helped because if you are a creator and you're making something that is about what scares people and you want to effectively scare people, of course you're going to tap into something very primal. Um, you're going to tap into, you know, culturally specific fears. When it comes to some Japanese horror films, uh, you're going to tap into, you know, fears of loneliness and social isolation, particularly in large cities. Um, and more recently, you know, the fear of technology and how omnipresent it's become in our lives. And so I think that in that way, horror can be this wonderful vehicle for sort of sneaking in the healthy food with the junk food, so to speak, where on the one hand, people come to horror thinking it's just going to be pulpy and silly and fun. But historically, it has very much been a vehicle for exploring really complicated issues. Absolutely. Um, I think we'll we'll start to see more and more uh, pollution related horror films, if not already. Uh, wasn't Godzilla came from a nuclear accident? Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> we, we know that uh, climate change and the climate crisis has inspired a lot of filmmakers. Have you seen that in horror? Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, I, I think that perhaps I'm seeing it a lot more in science fiction. You know, these days we, we even talk about cli-fi. Uh, is the, this kind of new breed of science fiction. But, of course, um, I think that uh, the, the recent uh, Shin Gojira, the Godzilla resurgence uh, film, of course, was kind of got, a lot, got a lot of attention because it featured so many scenes that for many people were reminiscent of the tsunami uh, and quake and also just environmental devastation um, of, you know, and, and the origin of Godzilla, yes, is from, uh, uh, you know, a nuclear bomb <laughs> and a nuclear disaster. Um, and I think the very first Godzilla film from many years ago really um, is a tragedy. I think that's what a lot of people forget when they think of Godzilla uh, from the 1960s that was kind of cute and silly. And then the more recent Godzilla films that are basically just action films that the original Godzilla was very much played as a tragedy. Uh, and it was played as, you know, this example of an unstoppable force of destruction, which at the time I think was more co connected to war, um, but could also absolutely uh, be connected to environmental devastation. And so we're seeing a lot, obviously horror has often dealt with plagues <laughs> um, and pandemics, um, but uh, definitely touches on, um, you know, the realities of, of climate change and what happens when, um, you know, there's just kind of this, this unstoppable force that we ignore until we can't <laughs> anymore. Um, and it's, it, even if it's not the main subject, I feel like it's kind of always in the background uh, of a lot of these films. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Colleen says, so relevant to more positive depictions, cool Japan, etc., but inspires us to think more critically about depictions of space, pay, place, people in the past, and great. Yeah, awesome comment. Thanks, Colleen. 
yeah, we academics love to talk about space, <laughs> I think, but but it is important. Yes, it's. Um, I think that uh, you know when we think about Japan, yeah, there there has often been this this particular narrative of you know what Japan is and what its people are. But if we delve uh, really deeply into uh, particular spaces and places like uh, you know derelict buildings or haunted schools or or uh, depopulated uh, rural spaces and things like that. We can learn so much. We can uh, I think extrapolate from that and just uh, make all kinds of connections to uh, really interesting aspects of history and culture uh, and social issues. Yeah, and in terms of um, the work that I do, trying to work with destinations or businesses, trying to promote what they are doing, which is sustainable, you have to be really careful about being honest. Like this is this is what we're doing. It's better than usual, but these are the hurdles that we're having. Um, and I think that's a problem with uh, cool Japan PR or any cool Britannica PR or come to America PR, right? Like it's it's only the gloss and and nothing none of the reality. So hopefully we can have more balance in perspective through horror and all kinds of media, right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> uh, we just have about five minutes left. Is there something we haven't talked about or something you've got coming up, new articles you're working on? Yeah, well, actually, uh, uh, Professor Laird is working on a wonderful new series on Japanese women directors, uh, which I am a part of and specifically talking about women horror directors, uh, of which there are not that many, actually, but there is a one a really wonderful director named Asato Mari, uh, who has made some very interesting films that uh, very often focus on women and women's lives. Um, so uh, that's something I'm working on. And then much further into the future, probably, I hope uh, that my uh, second book project uh, will again be focused on haunted houses and everything that that means. So I want to take a look at specifically how Japanese cinema and mostly Japanese horror cinema uh, has dealt with uh, these kinds of haunted spaces and old buildings and, uh, you know, the um, like traditional Japanese buildings versus modern buildings. And really, I architecture is kind of my second love. Uh, and uh, it's not something I'm an expert in, but this project will give me an excuse to uh, travel and look at a lot of very interesting buildings and also read a lot about architecture. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, architecture is so exciting, uh, especially like we talked about abandoned buildings. I interview so many people who are remodeling old traditional houses, but also finding new ways to live more comfortably in small spaces and other unique designs. I think there's, isn't there like an impression that Japanese people are not creative? I don't know where that comes from because Japanese people are so inventive and creative. Um, yeah, I, so I feel like maybe yeah, they're, they're, you know, the sort of blanket stereotypes about Japan or that, you know, uh, Japan is a very kind of mathematical society and, and that, which is, yeah, that's ridiculous. I, obviously, there is a ton of creativity uh, in Japan, particularly in the architecture world. I think there is, you know, there are amazing Japanese architects uh, who are doing wonderful things with sustainable architecture um, and just with uh, beautiful building designs. I, I love walking around Tokyo um, and just finding these absolute gems uh, of, you know, sometimes new, sometimes much older buildings and buildings that combine uh, traditional Japanese architecture with much older stuff. Places like Kanazawa um, are just fascinating uh, to see what's going on there. So, yeah, I think J Japan is, a, is an architectural dream for me. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. Um, so... One more thing, I think, when we're talking about horror or depictions of reality, um, which you probably see when you walk around Tokyo and see these buildings, is how uh, the private space is is kept, but the use of windows in uh, special areas to take the outside view inside is such an interesting part of uh, Japanese architectural design. Sure, yeah, I, I think one of the, the running themes through the book as well is this idea of the virtual window. Um, and when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about Anne Friedberg's concept, but also just this idea of how, you know, we're surrounded by windows, whether it's, you know, the frames that I'm looking at right now through which we're seeing this video, whether it's our smartphones, whether it's our, our laptops, whether it's the physical windows that I'm looking out of at, at my office and all of these 
windows literally frame how we see the world. Um, and so uh, within Japanese architecture, yeah, you have this very interesting use of both public and private space and how, you know, private space is usually very hidden. I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated by how uh, the exterior of a Japanese building will often be very, you know, neat and careful, but then inside it will sometimes be really chaotic. <laughs> um, and there'll be just kind of like a lot of things uh, stacked on top of each other. Um, but yeah, you have, you know, uh, sometimes shaded windows that give you like a partial view, but you're not really seeing the whole thing. But then if you go into uh, traditional like, you know, Minka or other kinds of like older Japanese buildings, there'll be these very large open uh, window spaces. And I, I, I remember like sitting back in the countryside and just having this like pastoral view in front of me that's just perfectly framed you know, by this this little window space. And yeah, it's it's fascinating how... Um, you know, it creates this really interesting border between outside and inside. Well, I, I appreciate that about your work, that you're helping open up these views that many of us have never thought about before. And these views through horror films or Japanese uh, media, which is framing our reality in new ways and helping us appreciate kind of a wider conversation about this. So thank you so much for all you do. Oh, thank you very much. Round and around and around. Are you near? Pick up your phone, dear. I've searched for hours, but you're nowhere. I found the note beside your cabin. Won't you see? Won't you see? I'll take your pain, just let me through.